Hello, and thanks for listening to the Mount Sinai Health Partners podcast. Uh, this is the actually first real episode that we're recording, and uh, I have the pleasure of being with my boss, Neam Gandhi, who's uh, the Executive Vice President and Chief Population Health Officer for Mount Sinai. Uh, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me, Rob. Yeah. Uh, bright and early this morning. So, um, Neam, we usually, when we start talking about this, and a lot of people know maybe the provider engagement team, but don't necessarily know you at all, or um, and you lead this whole thing. So uh, be good to maybe spend a couple minutes talking about you know, what brought you here, with a little of your story. Sure, absolutely. Uh, so I, I started at Mount Sinai about three years ago uh, in the summer of 2015, and I spent my 10 years prior to that doing healthcare consulting uh, around the country about half of it for health plans, uh, helping them set up value-based payment models, uh, alternative payment arrangements, some of the early patient-centered medical home pilots and ACO pilots even, uh, you know, kind of before the Affordable Care Act. And then the other half of it with health systems, clinically integrated networks, uh, large physician groups, uh, you know, large independent physician groups, uh, helping them really with anything related to the shift to population health value-based care uh, whatever kind of buzzword or buzz phrase was being used in any given point in time between, right. you know, 2005, 2015. Right. Um, whether it was changing contracts, uh, implementing new clinical models, uh, changing some of the cultural aspects that are required to succeed in population health, incentive models. Uh, and then, you know, really as I got to know Mount Sinai, uh, I saw an opportunity with an organization that was much more all in on this idea culturally. Uh, and and philosophically than any other health system I had encountered, and you know New York is a market that's been slow to population right. health. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so you know I kind of view that as an advantage. We can learn from the mistakes that people have made in other markets. Right. Uh, but even in a market that is so historically more fee for service driven, uh, seeing an organization like Mount Sinai that really has the commitment not just to have a population health strategy, but for population health to be the strategy. Right. Uh, and it's not you know, a bolt-on. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, all the way up to, to Ken Davis, our CEO, and, and to the board, uh, who really believe the future of this organization is as an organization that delivers the highest value healthcare to the people that we serve across all populations um, and is rewarded for the value of the care that we deliver right. across the board. Um, was it difficult to switch from, you know, your, your sort of on, on the plan side and on the consultant side Operationally, it's a very different shift, right? Like, how how was that for you? Uh, you know, it, it was. I'd say one of the interesting things is that uh, a lot of what you do as a consultant is uh, trying to help people along a path. Um, so, yeah. you know, I was used to joke with my junior consultants that you know when they got frustrated that something that we worked with a client on was never implemented. Um, I would say to them, well, you know, you, you know what your problem is. It's uh, that you think consulting is an ideas business. It's actually a people business. Right. And, uh, That's you know, a really good you, point. you have no way of influencing the world except by convincing somebody to take or not take action. Right. And I think in a large organization like ours uh, with a bold strategy that, you know, that uh, Ken has here around where he wants the organization to be, a lot of our job is actually helping people understand the change uh, that we want, mm-hmm. uh, and helping kind of guide the organization through that transformation, right. rather than you know actually 
digging into the operations because it's, you know, we have 40,000 employees, 7,000 right. physicians. Right. I mean, they're the ones doing they're the ones doing the real work. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I find that it's actually a lot more similar than it is different, uh, yeah, which, was, which was a little surprising to me. Right. Pleasant surprise. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> um, yeah, it seems like uh, certainly at this point, the corollaries of behavior change, we were just talking about behavior change at a corporate level. You're trying to, you know, really change culture and, and behavior in a way that um, – it's just, it can be challenging for sure, um, and I know we, you know, you and I have talked about behavior change. All it, it goes all the way through the network down to the frontline doc, right? So, yeah, absolutely, and down to the patients, down to the patients, right? Uh, which is maybe the hardest of all. I think most of the folks, the providers listening, maybe feel that's the hardest of all for sure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so thinking about you know your interest in in this work sounds like you know for a long time now. Why the interest? Like, what's going on in the world that's like even makes this a thing? So, you know, I came to it probably from a different angle than many. Um, I so I'm an economist by training. That's you know, kind of my okay. background. And uh, as I, uh, I think that's what got me really interested in healthcare mm-hmm. uh, because it's such a big portion of what we spend our money on as right. a as a country as right. a society, uh, and. In many ways, it's kind of because of this complex relationship between uh, physicians and their patients, and neither of them really bear the financials of it. Right. You know, it's all borne by the health plans and the big delivery systems and the employers. Uh, there's this odd disconnect between the laws of supply and demand that exist anywhere else and exactly. what exists in healthcare. Right. Uh, and, it, you know, I think where we are as a society and as a country right now. I mean, healthcare. When the when the numbers come in in 2017, I think everybody's projecting will be about 19% of GDP. Yeah, I mean that's it's you not know sustainable. Exactly, it's not sustainable <laughs> um, because it's funded. You know, 45% of the spend is funded with our tax dollars. Uh, the rest is taken out of people's wages. Uh, so it, it is it is our money collectively. Right. Um, and it, it's unaffordable at this point. Uh, you know, you need, need look no further than. The amount of our tax dollar that's going to it, the amount of every employer for most large employers, it's their second largest line item uh, after salaries. Right, and so there's if you look at that in a if you reduced it to any other sort of industry, Mm -hmm. you would say, well, you got to if you want to decrease the cost, you have to decrease either the price or the volume. Right, uh, from just kind of a you know math standpoint. Yeah. Well, if you look at that in healthcare, and I say. If if somebody else decreases it, if the health plan decreases it, you know, decreasing our price, well, you know, hard enough to, you know, run a not-for-profit health system, run a private practice that, you know, what if you just got paid 30% less? Right. I mean, it's absolutely, you know, unsustainable to run a, you know, small private practice. Well, right. I know you, you've done it, yeah, right? I've and if, done it. if somebody just cut your revenue by 30% overnight, yeah. you know, no chance. Yeah. Um, I would have lost more hair. <laughs> and then uh, you know the the alternative is cutting the volume. Right. Well, if you let somebody else cut the volume, it's going to be the way that the that historically the managed care organizations have cut the volume, right? Yeah. Preauthorizations, yeah. denials, and that's not really the right way of doing it either. And right. so we have this odd disconnect of those who are actually responsible for the care, right? Providers with their patients, physicians with their patients, versus those who have the accountability for spend which are the health plans. Yeah. So the health plans say that they provide, I don't know, 
oversight and support. I would say maybe sometimes <laughs> interference in the in the traditional sure. fee-for-service model. Right. But the idea of population health is, well, if you take that spend accountability, that, that accountability for total mm-hmm. outcomes, total cost, total quality, and put it at the intersection of the patient and the physician, where the treatment and management decisions are actually made, mm-hmm. then you've aligned the goals mm-hmm. and you've put clinical decision-making where it belongs right. rather than somewhere else. Right. So we have an opportunity if we change the payment model and if we change where the accountability sits to as provider organizations, as physicians, as health systems to own the problem and solve it right. rather than to have somebody else solve it for us in a way that we won't right. like. Yeah. So it's interesting though, that, uh, I mean, it's not a comfortable place for modern physicians to join the finance, the finances and economics of healthcare with the delivery, right? Like to your point, it's been disjointed yeah. since, you know, World War II essentially, even the start of health insurance. So, but in, I mean, it's in some ways it's actually going back to the beginning, you know, we're, uh, we're, it's not quite a cash-based economy, right? There's still sort of the difference in actual price and all that stuff. We're not quite there, but um I mean, it's like any other industry started, right? You're just buying and selling services, and That's it's right. a more direct relationship. It's combined with the clinical relationship. It's the way it started, right? I mean, initially, people paid money to go see the doctor, and you go, right? It's, yeah, uh, exactly. And I think it, it's actually aligned with, at least in the, um, with the physicians that I've spoken with, especially in primary care, it's, it's really aligned with the way they prefer to practice. Um, you know, do what's right for your patient, and get rewarded for that, for that, right? Rather than get rewarded for the number of patients who you happen to see in a given day, and the level of acuity of each visit, which yeah. is it's kind of an arbitrary way of um, of thinking about it. I mean, the the, the out of industry example that I always uh, use there is uh, you think about your auto mechanic, right? Right, and everybody hates their auto mechanic because they yes. they try to scam you, right? Uh, because they get paid more for the stuff that they did. Well, you know, what if your auto mechanic also owned the car insurance company. And, uh, right. you know, th- then they would just do what was best for you and your car. Right. That's a pretty low stakes game, your car, and, yeah. you know, a couple hundred bucks here or there for, right. you know, whatever they're tinkering around with. But what if it's your health and your right. life? Right. Right. And so I'm not saying that every physician should own their own insurance company, but, you know, with, with the move to population health, what we're doing is kind of synthetically creating a model that when the patient provider interaction is done in the most effective way for mm-hmm. the patient's long-term health mm-hmm. which is you know why we're all here yeah uh, then actually we make you know more money that we can invest back in doing more of that right rather than making less money right it we, we probably can't get to it today because a whole different conversation but it, it does lead to the uh, concept of um you know the the ROI, the return on investment on outcomes and preventive medicine. You know, we're in a tricky situation where the average person, right, an employer-based health insurance is on their health plan for less than five years, and so there's a whole path of conversation about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'd love to get to multi-year contracts, mm-hmm. um, and you can come up with all sorts of you know complex financial right. instruments to do that. There is, uh, I forget which country it is, either in Central or Northern Europe, that does. Uh, and it's a public-private mix, mm-hmm. you know, one of those public-private mix systems. Uh, and they do five-year uh, insurance contracts. Interesting. Um, with the, where the federal government pays the insurers over a five-year period. But it's, um, it's um, uncoupled from employment, though. It's, it's Exactly. Uh, right. Yeah, it's a public system. Yeah. And so, yeah, so I don't know what the answer is here. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but I am confident that if we all do 
uh, we're not going to get it perfect. Yeah, right? Right. And there's no fi- there's no perfect financial model. But right. if we take away the bad incentives, let physicians be physicians, mm-hmm. do what they do best, and do the best for their patients, and then reward them right. for that. Right. Then I'm confident we'll get that. We'll at least blunt the trend on that 19 percent. Yeah. Of right. GDP. That's right. Uh, because there's opportunity there. There's there's so much that happens because patients. Uh, are not engaged the right way in their health um, and because you know candidly everybody kind of makes more money if the care is bad which yeah. you know which doesn't mean people deliver bad care it just means they right. can't get rewarded for the great care for that the they deliver care. yeah exactly um, you know on a related topic in our network <clears throat> we have a significant chunk of, of voluntary physicians that uh, like you know I did where they run their own practice and they're probably more keenly aware of the finances uh, and the economics yeah. certainly within their own practices um, good and bad, uh, and then certainly I think a little more connected to the finances on the patient side because they're they often receive the complaints from patients yeah, about absolutely you know they show up at the front desk can't make their copay et cetera et cetera. Um, but we also have a majority of our providers are employed and a little less connected in many ways f- from their own economics to the economics and financing of healthcare. Do you you know how do you th- Vision. How do you envision approaching each of those? Because it's a little different, right? Like how you tell that story and make that connection. It's it's a, probably a little harder for the employee docs. That's been my experience. But. Yeah, I I think that's I think that's true. Um, you know, I think and some of it is not necessarily just putting that burden on the physician themselves. Right. Sure. Um, I don't think we want all of our physicians to have to you know go get MBAs. Right. And, right. right. Uh, so just so they can understand <laughs> right. their patient finances. You know, again, let, let them be focused on the clinical practice. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of it actually gets down to the others in the practice as well, right. um, where, you know, some of the decisions, absolutely. And I think, you know, understanding the implications for a patient of a, uh, you know, for prescribing a treatment or referral decision uh, is important. I, my sense is most of the physicians get a pretty good feel of that uh, mm-hmm. because, you know, the patients will, will push back. Um, right. And say, you know, hey, I can't, I can't afford the copay there, yeah. you know, doc. If, right. if you send me there, um, last time it cost me fifty bucks. Right, whatever, exactly. Yeah. Um, I think there's an opportunity to share some of that information with the physicians so that they, again, in the context of helping their patients. Right. Uh, so saying, you know what, if if you send your patient to this imaging center, uh, their cost share is likely to be X. If you send them to this other place, their cost share is likely to be Y. And that impacts care, right? And that impacts, exactly. Um, And so if that's available Mm -hmm. when the physicians want that information, um, I think that's great. I think we can also do some of the, um, for the employed physicians especially, I think we can do some of that for them through how we use the technology. Right. Um, So, you know, a lot of things are driven by the defaults in the MR. Well, you know, if we can set them to things that minimize patient liability, that minimize total cost of care. Right. you know, we're going to have better outcomes. Right. Make the right uh, choices easier. Right. Exactly. And uh, and then I think it's not as much a it's not as much a burden on the physician. I think mm-hmm. that there is you know there's probably some work that needs to be done to share some of this with some of the practice staff, mm-hmm. some of the administrative staff. Um, yeah. But I think you know the the fee for service economics of it are come naturally to them. They've, yeah. they've learned that, yeah. and so this is just a, it's another layer. It's another layer on top on top of that. So when we think about all those things that you just mentioned and the specific, you know, Sinai journey in this process, tell me a little bit, because I know this started even before you got here, and I'm yeah. the newest one of the bunch, so I, I can't speak to it as well as you can. You know, obviously there was senior leadership interest to move in this direction 
a while back. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of generally, what, what's been the journey, and where you know where are we now? Do you think in the are we in infant stage and yeah. awkward teenager stage? Um, I think we're well, you know we're we're a few miles into the marathon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know I think as as the, some of the history of it. So you know around 2010 or so, uh, maybe a little bit before that is when Sinai made kind of the commitment that this was the direction that the organization wanted to go. Mm-hmm. And you know again that was a kind of the board and CEO level. Um, and they took a step back and looked at the assets of Sinai at the time, and it was, you know, Quaternary Academic Medical Center yeah, on the Upper right. East Side, right. satellite campus in Queens, yeah, exactly. mostly specialists, few that's primary care docs. Yeah. And they looked at it and said, well, we don't, we don't really have all the right assets for this. And that, that's really what drove the merger with Continuum. Right. Um, and it was kind of this great puzzle piece match of, uh, you know, large community physician base in Continuum, good geographic match, uh, you know, great primary care base, mm-hmm. uh, great community primary care base, uh, voluntaries as well, uh, that kind of lined up with uh, some of the assets and skills that Sinai had. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, but mergers are hard, they take time. Right. And so, you know, when that closed in 2013, there was a little bit of a pause pressed on, you know, some of the moving the strategy forward right. um, so that the organization could really jump in in earnest mm-hmm. in, you know, kind of late 14, early 15. And so we've mm-hmm. really only been at the big push on this for, you know, the kind of all-in push for, you know, three, four years. Okay. A um, lot of great groundwork before that, right? And for the physicians in our network who were in the uh, in the original Mount Sinai ACO, Mount Sinai Care ACO with Medicare Shared Savings that we started in, you know, July of 2012. Uh, for them, this is, you know, year six right. um, of this, which is great. And, yeah. and I think there is, you know, there's some great success stories actually from that first year or two yeah. um, on some of the metrics. I know that the depression screening one is an example where we just, you know, we were doing about as well as everybody else yeah. um, in year one. And then uh, there's this great kind of educational campaign about the importance of it, right. some work done to hardwired into the EMR, and then we hit, like, I think, 95th percentile nationally the next year. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and so, yeah. you know, g- great work, uh, a great base of kind of information, right. uh, and uh, some of that education uh, of the patients as well, mm-hmm. uh, of the practices. Uh, but I think, you know, really the past three or four years is when we kind of hit the inflection point and, and pushed harder. I mean, I, I view this as a... This is a 10 to 20 year journey. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're not going to be in a ideal state, future state model mm-hmm. where we're perfectly optimized for population health, you know, anytime in this decade. Yeah. Um, it'll be, you know, hopefully next decade, maybe the decade after, right? Yeah. But the the way I think the uh, the organization looks at it is, you know, we've been in the communities that we've been in serving them uh, for 166 years. Yeah. And our job is to be here serving those same communities 166 years from now. Right. Um, so what puts us in the best position to do that? Right. You know, continuing through and soldiering through the rest of the marathon. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, so that we have the muscle memory to be able to, you know, to do this sustainably in the long term. Yeah. It, um, you know, when you think some of the, I mean, you obviously have traveled to a bunch of different systems in, in your previous role and, and have a greater context for what's happening out there. I mean... I, but I think a lot of the frontline folks that may be listening uh, don't have that same context. When you think about the advocates in Chicago, the Kaisers, I mean, they've been at this for sure, 20 for, plus yeah, for years. Many years. Uh, you know, it, it does take a long time for sure. Yeah. I, you know, I think that there are, and that's part of the, the benefit, like I mentioned before, that we have in New York of being able to see mm-hmm. what has happened in some of those other markets. Yeah. 
what is applicable, what isn't. Yeah. Um, I think we have to be careful about that, right? The answer right. isn't, oh, we're going to do exactly what right. this organization did out in California because yeah, it's, you know, it's different. Yeah. Um, but there are, you know, I mean, there are organizations out there, and some of them are the big systems, and some of them are these small, innovative organizations mm-hmm. that just think about it differently from scratch. Mm-hmm. And the impact isn't you know, marginally better quality scores and, you know, one or 2% lower trend. Mm -hmm. The the impact is 20 to 30% lower total cost of care, uh, you know, outstanding quality scores, Mm -hmm. uh, the highest patient satisfaction, you know, you've ever seen. Right. And it's not because the, you know, physicians have to shoulder a whole bunch of extra burden and do a bunch of extra work. It's because the system is actually designed Mm -hmm. for those outcomes. And I think that's, that's probably the biggest challenge we have in you know whatever metaphor you use turning the aircraft carrier or you know whatever that is um the uh paul de from uh from dartmouth had this great quote uh every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets Mm -hmm. and you know i think that's so true in u.s healthcare we have all of the right intentions right the system is designed stealing your phrase for it you know to pay for widgets Mm -hmm. and so if you design a system on widgets on each encounter then you get really good widgets yeah and and a lot of them and a lot of them (laughs) exactly um and so the system is perfectly designed for that the system Mm -hmm. is not perfectly designed for managing total health and well-being over the longitudinal life of a patient right Um, if we designed it from scratch to do that we would have it would look very different it would and uh, you know a, a I think a great example of it is when we think about primary care transformation um, and transformation. I think you've probably heard me say this transformation in my opinion is like the most yeah. overused word in healthcare. Right. We call everything transformation because <laughs> uh, we want to make it a big deal. When it's just change. When it's just change. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but real transformation I right. think is different. Um, and so the, the analogy I use for that is, um, you know, if it's, if it's 1850 and you're running a shipping company, and you take things from New York to London, and it takes you 15 days. Mm-hmm. And a customer comes to you and says, you know, hey, I really want my stuff from New York to London in 10 days. You know, you think about it, uh, and you change your supply chain a little bit, and you build a faster boat, and you do it. Yeah. Then another customer comes to you and says, well, you know, I kind of need my stuff there in five days. Right. Like, okay, well, you know, I've done this before. I can, I can improve. I can change things a little bit. You build a faster boat. Then a customer comes to you and says, five days? I was thinking five hours. Yeah. So you're not in the boats game, you're in the planes game. Yeah. And that's, you know, faster boats is improvement. Yeah. Boat to plane, I would think of as transformation because you're defining an outcome that you want and you suspend the today and purpose build for that. And so it's, uh, you know, the idea of taking... uh, a model that's perfectly designed for fee-for-service, that's designed for widgets, 23 patients in a day, get them in and out, you right. know, get paid. Right. And saying, yeah, you know, if we add a morning huddle and a care coordinator, suddenly it's perfectly designed for value. Yeah. That's like saying we can take a boat and, you know, slap on some wings and suddenly it flies, yeah. which, it, it, which doesn't. it doesn't. Right. Um, so from a change standpoint, you know, can we actually say, um, well, you know, what does a plane look like? Mm-hmm. And build that from scratch. And, you know, that, that's where I think there are some organizations that have done that. Yeah. Uh, and it's fascinating to see that they they look nothing like, you know, the way we would normally think that's of, right. you know, a practice. Um, and then, so that's an interesting question. But I yeah. think a more interesting question is how do you 
turn a boat into a plane. Yeah. So, you know, how do you retrain exactly the, the captain to be a pilot, retrain the crew to be flight attendants, uh, you know, strap in the passengers in a different way, put wings on it. Right. Take off the motor, put on a jet engine, get yeah. it into the air without it crashing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, at scale across hundreds of practices. Yeah. Um, how do you change an armada into an air force? Yeah. Right. Uh, that we need in healthcare. I think that's that's really fascinating. Right. Um, I think we'll get there. I don't think anybody's figured that one out. Right. There are blueprints for planes out there. There are planes flying around. Yeah. But there are organizations that, you know, that build planes from scratch. Right. Um, and that's very different than saying, you know, what resources can we give a physician today? Mm-hmm. You know, somebody who's really doing the work today. What resources can we wrap around them so that we can help that practice, whether it be a voluntary practice or one of our mm-hmm. employed practices, you know, turn into a transformed model and right. improve the joy of practice for the physicians, for all the staff, improve the outcomes for the patients, improve the patient satisfaction, and do it all in a financially sustainable way. And, and again, there's, there's blueprints out there that you see it, mm-hmm. um, but getting from A to B uh, without breaking anything in the meantime yeah. is, is probably the, the harder work. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, it, everything you've said is I can uh, certainly relate to. I, I've had several friends over my career that have yeah, this have started all sorts of models. You look at the direct primary care model, for instance, is one sure. that's it's really popular and growing exponentially. And it's great, right? Like it, it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning, sort of the, I don't know, really the origins of, of medicine, we not only um, in terms of a relational way, mm-hmm. uh, but also the finances, right? It really directly, uh, yeah, that's the name, it directly connects the finances. That's probably the fundamental way that it's different. It really directly connects the finances of healthcare to the care in such a way you can eliminate a bunch of costs and a cheaper. That's all great, but I've always contended that that's that's not the way we're going to change the world, right? We're not going to change the world through direct through small yeah. direct primary care models. It's it's going to be exactly as you said. How do we change massive systems, right? And because um, yeah, well, and that's the I had the opportunity to uh, moderate a panel uh, with uh, CEOs or senior leaders from mm-hmm. uh, three organizations that do this kind of next generation primary care sort of stuff. So right. Care More, right? That you know does work for kind of really high risk patients. Uh, through this center-based model, um, it's almost going back to like really old-school primary care, where they, you know, the primary care doc is the hospitalist, yeah, and they follow the patient in that way, and yeah. they have, you know, they wrap them with all these services um, to, you know, and it's really fascinating what they've been able to do. Uh, Landmark, which does the same sort of thing through a home-based primary care model, mm-hmm. um, and then Iora, uh, who's more in kind of the direct primary care game, yeah, uh, with you know Medicare Advantage plans, large unions. Uh, and they all have these amazing outcomes yeah. uh, across, again, across the board and really, really high physician and staff satisfaction also. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, the question I posed to them was, well, you know, you, you guys deliver 20% lower total cost of care, great outcomes, great satisfaction, um, really happy physicians. But you add all three of your organizations up and you take care of, you know, 175,000 people <laughs> nationally. Um, and, you know, we... We provide primary care through our clinically integrated network to about a million people. Right. And so are are you guys who are really good mm-hmm. going to get big or are we gonna get good? When right. what, what's what's question. gonna get there first? You know, and you know, are yeah. there gonna be 
are we going to take each one of them that take care of 50,000 patients and you know scale them up to a million? Uh, or are we going to have five to 10 Sinai's that get to that you know, level across the network right. um, and, you know, make it that way. Or is it going to be both? Because yeah. even if we do both of those things, there's still, you know, 300 million people left. Right, right, right. Um, and I think that's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm an optimist by nature. Um, I think that 10, 15, 20 years from now, when you look at healthcare in this country, we're going to have a lot more of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to have figured out as an industry how to support the people who are passionate about the care they deliver to their patients right. in the right way so that they can deliver the care they need to to their patients right. and that they want to um, rather than I, I actually think if we do population health right it's kind of going back to what we were discussing before but if we do it right we actually don't need to worry as much about the finances mm-hmm. I think that there's a tremendous amount of burden placed on the finances of a model that isn't aligned with the best clinical care. Mm-hmm. And so we have this cognitive dissonance that we create mm-hmm. uh, that we put the physicians in the middle of where they have to worry about things like prior authorizations, where they have right. to worry about things like, oh, am I building the right level of office visits so that I can make you know make the economics of the practice work? Right. I mean, that's, that's unfair. Yeah. And if we line up the incentives, then I think as, you know, as people who are focused on care delivery... Our network can just focus on that. Mm-hmm. And then the finances follow yeah, naturally. Everything you do that's incrementally better for a patient, it, there's ROI to it. Yeah, And I think that's what we need to aim for because as soon as we get into that model, then we have the army of the continuous improvement, the 40,000 employees, the 7,000 physicians, yeah. where that's where the innovation is going to come from. It's yeah. not going to come from, you know, with all due respect to you and me, it's not going to yeah. come from our offices no, no, sitting right. here. Right. It's going to come there. Um, if we can wrap the right services around it and align the incentives so that when that innovation happens, uh, everybody, including the patient and the physician, do better financially, yeah, like, and then we can kind of forget about the finances yeah. and just deliver care. Yeah. It's probably a good place to stop. Uh, appreciate your time, Neam. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thanks again for having me. Absolutely. Um, so those of you that are listening, if you have ideas for future podcasts, you can email, email me at robert.fields at mountsinai.org. Thanks, Neam. Thanks, Rob. 